It's good to see everybody this morning. Thanks for coming. It's good to be together with a family that will be family forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ will always be brothers and sisters. And so uh, it's good to gather around the Word together this morning. Um, as I was considering uh, what to preach for my very final uh, sermon here uh, at Grace, or at least my final sermon on staff, I hope it's not the final time I ever address you guys. I, I want to come back uh, and see you guys. Um, I was in the office a couple weeks ago, and I, you know, did what any smart person in our office would do. I said, Demo, what should I preach on? <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he said, you should preach that, uh, that doxology, that benediction, the one about the blood of the eternal covenant. Um, and he said, it's at the end of Jude, I think. And I said, I don't think that's the one at the end of Jude. So we looked it up, and, uh, and we found it at the end of Hebrews. So take your Bibles this morning, please, and open them to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, the two verses that we're going to look at this morning are verses 20 and 21. We, we know what a benediction is, or at least most of us do. It's a fancy word for prayer. Uh, when you go to a formal event, uh, often you'll see on the program at the end it will say benediction, and we know what that means. It means that someone's going to get up at the end, and they're going to talk to God in front of the rest of us. And, and we've probably been in some places where there have been some really bad benedictions, Right? You've probably been in venues before where someone prayed at the end and you thought, whoa, like I'm not sure what that was or what God they were praying to. Or I know that I, anytime I'm in a public kind of setting, I'm, I'm paying attention to the kind of prayer that's being prayed. And we know that like at a presidential inauguration or someplace like that, you know, and we know that there's going to be some, some, uh, some pastor or some religious leader that's going to be there and praying. And if you're like me, I'm paying careful attention to what's being said in that moment. Is he, is he going to pray a prayer that God will hear? Is he going to, is he going to pray in Jesus' name in front of the world audience? Is he going to pray in Jesus' name? And we, we pay careful attention often to the benediction that someone gives. I think it's God's intent for us to pay careful attention to this benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews. There are plenty of other benedictions in the Bible. You're familiar with probably the most familiar one. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. You've heard that hundreds, maybe thousands of different times. The end of Thessalonians, the first book of Thessalonians says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now that's an incredibly encouraging passage. Or the end of the second letter to the Thessalonians says this, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. The point of these benedictions at the end of these books and the one that we're going to look at, the, the purpose that they're given to us by God, the, the reason the author of Hebrews, and we're not exactly sure who wrote Hebrews, but the, the reason this author ends this way is he wants to, to the, the, the audience that he's writing to, he wants them to be encouraged, but not just in kind of a, vague, meaningless, vanilla sort of way, right? We, we do this often, and we don't mean ill by it. We actually mean good by it. We'll say, God bless you, and, and you know, it's kind of a generic, you know, purpose that we, we want God to bring blessing into someone's life, and so we're saying something that we think is encouraging. Well, here, the author of Hebrews is going to say, God bless you to the people he's writing to, to the Jewish Christians that he's writing to, and he's going to say, God bless you in a very specific sort of way. And I think he wants, God wants us to be 
blessed by these same truths. So let's read together. Look with me. I'm going to read out loud. You follow along. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God verse 21, equip you. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then the prayer is ended the way we end our prayers. Amen. Amen. God, please help us as we consider your word this morning, I pray that it would encourage us that our hearts and minds would be blessed, strengthened, and encouraged because of what we've seen together here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to take these two verses and we're going to kind of just break this sermon into two parts. Number one, verse 20, we're going to look at what God has done for us in Christ. And then part two, verse 21, what God is doing for us in Christ. So the title of the sermon is, It's All God's Work. From start to finish, it's all God's work. From the beginning of your Christian life to eternity in heaven, I guess there really is no end. It's all God's work. And that's what this passage is prayed for the original hearers and for us. This is the reason we have this prayer is so that we would be blessed and encouraged, not with who we are or what we've done. That doesn't do anything but discourage. But when we consider what God has and is doing in us through Christ for his glory, it brings us great encouragement, great confidence. Point number one, what God has done in Christ. And I'm kind of going to summarize all that by saying he redeemed us. He redeemed us. Now, may the God of peace, so right out of the start, God is being described in a specific way. There's a lot of different ways we could describe God, right? I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could describe you. You have, you have different roles and different character traits and different attributes about you, and, and if someone was going to describe you, they probably wouldn't just use one word. They use a lot of different words. We could say the God of justice, the God of love, the God of righteousness, the God of wrath. But here, the author intentionally chooses of peace. God wants us to know, as we're being encouraged with what God has done and is doing in us, he's using the phrase of peace to communicate something to us. We want peace, and we desperately need peace. We want peace at home, with our wives, with our kids. We want peace at work. We want peace with our friends. We want peace with our colleagues. We want peace in our nation. We want peace in our world. We we desperately want peace. And there's, there's only so much that we can really do to get peace. And even the peace that we get is elusive, isn't it? We think, well, if I can just get X number of dollars in my savings account, then I'll have peace. If I can just get my, you know, body mass index, my fat percentage below a certain point, then I'll have peace. If I can just have the relationship with the person that, if I, we have this list of, if I can just, then I will have peace. The only one 
who is absolutely peace and is the only one who can actually dish out, for lack of a better, there's, I'm sure a better way to put it, but who can dish out peace into your life is this God, the sovereign God of the universe. The Old Testament uses the word shalom. Both the Old Testament word and the New Testament word have this idea of the fullest prosperity to the entire man. So we're not just talking about spiritual peace. We're talking about financial peace, emotional peace, spiritual peace, peace in every aspect and every part of your life. And we want that, don't we? And God is the one who can and does give it to those who are his. We're going to look at, uh, in a little while, Christ is described as the shepherd and we are his sheep. And to be a sheep in God's pasture doesn't mean that there aren't ever going to be wolves. And it doesn't mean that you as a sheep aren't ever going to do things foolish. But it does mean that the perfect great shepherd, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, Rain it back in, Jeremy. There's a great shepherd, we're going to talk about him in a few minutes, who brings peace to his sheep. We read in the Psalms of lying down in green pastures and him restoring our souls. And we look at the world around us and we go, man, we're not going to have any peace on this side of eternity. But I beg to differ. We will have and do have peace. But it's not the kind of peace that means that you live on vacation your whole life. There's this settled peace deep in your soul that lets you live through the loss of a loved one and come out on the other side where even you know there's a peace that passes understanding. It didn't come from me. I didn't muster it up. I didn't trick myself. I didn't use psychology. There's a peace that was given to me from God that actually kept me through this. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me. There is this great shepherd who brings peace into our lives so that even when the circumstances in our life are incredibly unpeaceful, there's a rock of Gibraltar kind of peace. Right? Waves can crash against that huge rock. I always think of the prudential commercials with the huge rock. Is that the rock of Gibraltar in those commercials? It is. Okay, I just learned something. Thank you, Dave Jackson. Um, Right, so, so waves crashing against that rock, the rock's not going anywhere. And the peace that comes from God is a peace that no waves and winds of this life can affect. Why? Because it's peace from God. And, and God doesn't change. God isn't battered about by winds and waves. And so this God of peace is one who brings peace into our life. Why describe God this way? Because we're not at peace with God. From, from the very get-go, the Bible describes us as being born in sin. We're born as enemies of God. I don't like that description. I like to think that I've basically been God's friend my whole life and that he's always been favorably inclined toward me and that there's always been a peaceful relationship between me and God, but that's, that's not the case The Bible actually says that I was born in sin. In Romans 5.10, it says this, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. So much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here's a peacemaking God. But God's making peace not with someone who deserved peace or someone who earned peace. God's making peace with those who had their guns pointed at him. Right? So it's, it's one thing for me to do something kind and loving for one of my children. They're nice, and I love and like them. It's another thing for me to lay down my life for a Taliban soldier who would kill me and my family. 
And as much as we don't like this, the Bible actually describes you, and you're nice people. I mean, I know almost every single one of you. You're as nice a group of people collected together as any I've ever been a part of. But the Bible describes each of us as enemies of God, and that's a problem. See, because enemies need to be brought to peace or they're going to fight, and the stronger one will win. And you and I aren't the stronger one. We're the weaker one. So we're an enemy of God, and we're a weaker enemy of God. And unless enemies are reconciled, the stronger opponent will win, and the weaker enemy will be destroyed. And here God, the stronger of the the two, is the one who initiates reconciliation to bring those who would gladly have shot their guns at him and turned them around, and he brings us to himself, and he makes peace with us. Those who didn't deserve peace— I read Romans 5.10 where it says that we were enemies. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, do you know the next word? We have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that in just a second. This book of Hebrews is ended with this prayer, but if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you, you know that Hebrews is a book that puts on display the inferiority of the Old Covenant and the superiority of the New Covenant. The inferiority of the old sacrificial system and the superiority, the perfection of Christ in his work and his death and his resurrection. Hebrews rings, as one pastor put it, Hebrews rings with the action of God to make peace with us. So God isn't just this, there's not just this subjective idea that since he's God, he's at peace and we, you know, life is hard for us, but God is in the clouds and it's a vacation land for him. No, this is a gritty, active kind of peace where he goes and he turns around enemies and he makes them his children. That's you and me. Now, that's humbling, but that's incredibly encouraging. And, and we haven't even gotten into the passage hardly. God is a God of peace. He himself is peace, and he is initiating peace in the lives of those who, are, who were once his enemy. Our greatest need is to have peace with God, because if we don't have peace with God, then we will experience the wrath of God. See, some people say, well, you need to be saved from Satan, or you need to be saved from hell. And maybe in a sense that's true, but what you have to be saved from is the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God that we have to be saved from. See, our sins deserve punishment, and the just punishment of those sins is God pouring out his wrath on you, and the way he, the way he does that is by separating you from himself forever in hell. So how, how do you make peace with God? Well, you make peace with God through the reconciliation that God has provided through his son Christ. Are you at peace are you at peace in an, in an ultimate sort of way? Have you reconciled your sin and the righteousness of God? Have you turned to Christ as your king and savior? There, there may be some in here this morning who don't have peace with God. I would encourage you to lay down your weapon and uh, surrender, submit yourself to this king, this good king. We just saying, what can wash away my sin? What, what makes this peace with God? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The next phrase in the passage, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Right? And, and 
that phrase, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, there's just so much there. We have so little time. There's so much there. Brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Why? Our, our Lord, our King, our Master Jesus was dead. Why was he dead? I thought he was God. Why was God dead? And why would he need to be raised back to life again? This is all part of that plan, the plan that we've sung of this morning, the work of Christ, the, the, the blood of Christ. God brought Jesus to the cross. God brought Jesus as Jesus laid down his life into death. And then God brought Jesus out of death into life again. Jesus was brought again from the dead. He was raised from the dead. This is the only mention of the resurrection in the book of Hebrews right here, but it's an essential part of our Christian understanding of what Christ has done. What amazing power. Right, so the, the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is what assures us. It's what secures us. This, this is just another phrase of unbelievable security and and. Uh, and joy for us. As God says, uh, Jesus died for your sin, but I brought him back from the dead as a first fruits of the rest of you who, when you put your faith in my son, I'm going to bring you back from the dead as well. Ephesians 1.19, referring to the amazing power that God raised Jesus from the dead with, says this, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This Savior died and was raised again. This description of our great shepherd is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, uh, Paul says in Corinthians, we are of all men most miserable. So here, the author is, is just adding, stacking up more gospel language. This God of peace, this God of peace who brought Jesus from the dead. And then there's kind of a little parenthetical expression here. We're talking about Jesus. God brought Jesus from the dead. Who is Jesus? Jesus is, our, is the great shepherd of the sheep. The next phrase there in verse 20. The great shepherd of the sheep. Now, again, we started the passage looking at uh, a God of peace. Now we have a description of Jesus and words aren't wasted. Words are used intentionally. And Jesus is described as a shepherd. Now, again, there's, I mean, there's hundreds or thousands of different ways that Jesus could have been described for us here. But, but Jesus is described as a shepherd of sheep. Now, um, I haven't been around sheep a whole lot. I've been around sheep a little bit. Sheep are not courageous. Are the penfolds here this morning? No, but if you go to the Penfolds farm, they have sheep. She raises sheep for 4-H, right? When I, when I see the sheep in the pen, I'm not thinking, oh no, look out. We need a stronger fence, right? Uh, you know, I'm not thinking, boy, for a mascot, I'm thinking the sheep, right? We're going to be the sheep. Sheep, they're just kind of dumb, furry animals that need a shepherd. They need help. They don't, they don't do well left out in the wilderness, uh, it, that's my understanding anyway, okay? I'm no expert on sheep. Um, but I've been around them a little bit. I've heard really funny stories of people surprising sheep and the sheep actually falling over dead from a heart attack. Um, so again, this is, not the, this is not the animal that you want as a mascot, but this is how God is describing you. And if you're honest with yourself, you can accept that, right? If you're, if you, if you're honest, you go, okay, yeah. That's nah, probably, I'm not a German shepherd. I'm not a lion. I'm not, you know, a cheetah. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sheep. But we have 
a shepherd, right? And so we, I mean, we even think of the psalm, <clears throat> excuse me, the psalm again, the Lord is my shepherd, and then the description, the beautiful imagery of how this shepherd takes care of his sheep. You know what earthly human shepherds are like, and I'm talking about literal shepherds who actually have real literal sheep. They, they defend their sheep, they provide for their sheep, they take care of their sheep, they're watching out for their sheep constantly. And you also know that that imagery is used for pastors in the church, that they're, they're to serve the sheep of the church as under shepherds under the great shepherd. And so you know that when there's a need that you have, you can, you can go to your under shepherd, to your pastor, and he'll, he'll counsel you spiritually or he'll help you know, provide means for you financially. Or um, when, you, when you're struggling with something spiritually, your pastor's there to help you. Or when you're in the hospital, he can come and care for your, your soul to a, de- to a degree in, in your body, probably not at all. Um, but, but here's an under shepherd who's, who's there to take care of you. But our great shepherd, uh, there's, there's no comparison whatsoever between the great shepherd and an under shepherd. Right? I can come visit you in the hospital. The great shepherd can heal your body. The great shepherd will ultimately and finally heal your body forever. I can come and give you spiritual counsel. The great shepherd can actually regenerate your dead soul. He can make your spiritually blind eyes to see. He can make your spiritually unbeating heart to beat. The great shepherd is not to be compared with human under shepherds. We know what it is to be shepherded. We know the idea of shepherding. And here, this idea is used to describe our Christ, a shepherd of the sheep. So don't miss the tender and, and colorful imagery here. He, he could have said the great master of the servants, the boss of the employees, the ruler of the ruled, the king of his minions. But he uses the words, the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd of the sheep, the greatest shepherd of the sheep. This is the only time in Hebrews that Christ is referred to as a shepherd, and he is the great shepherd. This great shepherd has done something that no other earthly shepherd has ever done or, or could do. It would be ridiculous, and, and you'll know what I mean when I say this. Um, shepherds who sit on hillsides with staffs in their hands, tending sheep. I don't know if they use staffs. They probably use AR-15s or something like that now uh, to, for wolf you know, prevention. Um, but shepherds don't enter into agreements or covenants with their sheep. You say, well, of course not. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. A sheep can't, can't agree to, can't covenant with uh, a shepherd. It's a sheep, and he's a shepherd. But this great shepherd with his sheep, look in verse 20, this great shepherd of the sheep enters into a covenant, an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant that is entered into and sealed with the blood of the shepherd. The, the human illustration of sheep and shepherds breaks down in an, in an infinite sort of way all of a sudden. You see, this great shepherd, our Savior Christ, was brought from the dead, is the great shepherd of the sheep, and all of this, even the, the peacemaking of God, all of this is done through the blood of the eternal covenant. What is the blood of the eternal covenant? These are... Enormous topics throughout your Old Testament, and Hebrews 
uh, as well. Hebrews is a book that walks us through how significantly better Christ is than, than everything else in the Old Testament. And the, the new covenant that Christ is, is entering into for his people is better than the Old Covenant. Hebrews is powerfully displaying the superiority of the new covenant. Not a covenant of works. We bring animals to slaughter to cover our sin. No, not that. But actually, the death of Christ where his blood doesn't just cover sins, but it takes them away entirely. In fact, it takes them away because he takes them on himself and he pays for them. And then we know the scripture says that he separates them as far away as the east is from the west. This covenant was God's idea, right? So again, here's, here's me and the Taliban soldier. He wants to kill me, but I'm stronger. And I say, I'm going to bring us to peace, even though you don't want it. I'm going to bring us to peace. How am I going to do it? I'm going to kill my son, Jay, to bring us as warring parties back together. God in heaven is the one who from eternity past is the one who decided that this covenant would be the way he brings his sinful people who are running away from him back to himself by bringing a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that is both God and man. Jesus lives the life that we couldn't live but needed to and dies the death that we deserved to die and was raised again. All of this is part of that eternal covenant that God made before he even made the world. He made this covenant. So the shepherd making a covenant with his sheep. Spurgeon says this. I love this. This helps me understand. It's not a covenant of if I will... Excuse me, it's not a covenant of if you will, then I will, right? So God's not in heaven saying, if you'll do this, then I'll do this and let you into heaven. That's not the kind of covenant. But rather, I will and you will because I'm going to ensure that you will. See the difference? It's not if you do such and such, then I'll do such and such. It's not, it's not a bargain it's a unilateral covenant where God, is, God does both sides of the covenant. Christ is the keeper of both sides of the covenant. Every other religion is a religion of God saying, if you will, then I will. Right? Every other religion says, okay, I've got you as the follower in that religion. You think to yourself, okay, I, I've got to do these things in order to get back to God. And in the Christian religion, God is saying, I've provided a way for you to get back to me. I've actually already done it in Christ. All you must do now is receive it. It's been done for you. That's why we call it good news, not good advice. The gospel is not good advice. If you share Christ with someone and they leave thinking, okay, I, I, know, I know what I've got to do in order to get right with God. I've got to go to church and read my Bible and, and you know, start living a better life and, and then maybe I can get saved. Then you've misrepresented the gospel. And if that's what you think, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's the news that Christ lived, died, and was raised for you. And all of this is part of the plan of God for us, this eternal covenant. This is how he establishes peace, the God of peace in verse 20. 
Blood was shed to bring about peace. I mean, we think about even wars and fightings in our own world, right? Two armies come together and they fight and blood is shed and eventually peace comes about. But this is a very different kind of bloodshed. This is the voluntary bloodshed of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to make peace with us, this blood of the eternal covenant. There's so much more we could say about this topic. You could have a series of sermons on the blood of the eternal covenant. This blood of the eternal covenant um, brings us back to God. Jeremiah 32.40, referring to this same covenant, says this. And if you're taking notes, be sure to write this passage down. Um, and if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, I'm sure I'd read this verse many times before as I was preparing for this sermon. Um, this verse just exploded uh, in my mind. Jeremiah 32, verse 4. <clears throat> God, speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. W- what's the content of that covenant, God? That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So in this covenant that God enters into with his people, for those of you who have turned from sin and put trust in Christ, you're born again, this is for you, brothers and sisters. This verse is for you. This eternal covenant is something that you're now a part of. And God, it's as as though God is saying this directly to you. I will make with you an everlasting covenant that I, God, will not turn away from you. I will not turn away from doing good to you. I mean, imagine with me the the wealthiest person that you can imagine saying to you, I'm going to take care of you. You don't have anything to worry about. Immediately, there would be some sense of peace brought into your life, right? Now, you might think, well, I could still die of cancer, or I could get run over by a car, or, you know, my kids could run off and join the circus. Or, I mean, there, there's still other things that you could worry about, but, but there's a lot of things all of a sudden they're taken care of. You're like, well, I, don't, I guess I'm going to stop working. For, no, no, don't do that. Um, but I mean, all of a sudden, there would be some measure of peace brought into your life. But here, the God of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, says to you, I'm not going to stop doing good for you. I've got your back. I know you. And I, for, if you're like me, sometimes it's hard for me. I, I know that God like is sovereign and he governs all his people and he does well for all his people. But sometimes I think, yeah, but does he know about me? And a verse like this is, a, is an intimate kind of passage where, where God is saying, I'm not going to stop doing good to my people and you are my people. And then he does something like, so that's, that's just blowing the circuitry of my mind. And then, the second half of the verse, it says, And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So you want to talk about a passage that gives me something solid to stand on. Because I'll be honest, I get scared of me sometimes. Do you ever have those times where maybe you've just read your Bible or you're driving home late at night and you're thinking about something and your mind's just kind of going and you, you start to have fearful thoughts like this? Is all this really true? Is it really true? 
do, do I really believe all this? What if I think I believe it now, but five years from now, I don't? What if I run away from my wife and kids? What if I totally turn my back on everything that I say I believe now? Because I really think I believe it now, but what if I, other, I know other people who I really thought they believed it, and now they're out in left field doing crazy stuff. Brothers and sisters, God says this, for those who are his people, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to hold you. Sometimes we think, I don't know if I can hold on to God. God, I mean, you know, I hope I can make it through this life. And, and that's the, the imagery is backwards. One guy described it to me this way. It's like God's hand is reaching down from heaven and your hand is reaching up to God's. Just picture yours limp. All right, you got nothing. You're not adding. But God has this unremovable lock on you. He's got you. He's not going to let you go. He's actually even going to work at the, at the level of your heart and your desires, he will put the fear of God in you, and you know that the fear of God is a good thing. It doesn't mean you tremble and hide from him, but that you have appropriate awe and respect for all that God is and all that he's done. He's going to put the fear of God in you so that you will not turn from him. Your confidence that you won't turn from God is not because you are strong or you are capable or because you've got your act together. It's because God is capable, God is strong, and God has his act together, and he's got you. Revel in this. Revel in this rock of Gibraltar. Bad things have happened to you. Bad things are happening to you. Bad things will happen to you. But they don't even begin to move the solidity, is that a word? Solidity, the solidness of this covenant. John Piper has this saying for, for the people in his church. He says, go for it. You can only be killed. I mean, what, what, are, we, what are we really scared of? God has promised, I've got you. I've got you forever. This life is the short part. I had a dream last night that I was like, <laughs> I, that I was like, old and in my mind or in my dream some of you are going to get uh, i'm going to have to hear about this afterwards i was like 58 right <laughs> and i remember thinking oh man like i'm almost done what's going on here uh where was i going with that uh yeah <laughs> yeah that's right the wrong direction um look th- this life is the really short part and the really hard part the peace the covenant, the promises of God are for eternity. There's a more real reality coming. There's a, there's a more alive life coming. The promises, these promises that God has made are ultimately made, are ultimately to be had for eternity in heaven. So you might say, well, all these promises, Jeremy, they sound good and God's going to do good things to me, but my kid just died or I've got cancer or I don't have any money or, you know, whatever your deal whatever your problem is i'm telling you these problems are given to you to to give you the the rock to get you through now we know the story of in the book of joseph where uh at the end of joseph's um experience with his brothers uh, he looks at them and he says you meant these things against me for evil 
but God meant them for good. There were two things happening simultaneously. Joseph's brothers were trying to hurt him, and God was purposing good in Joseph. Two things happening simultaneously. The exact same circumstances, and Joseph's brothers are getting done what they wanted to do. Sweet, man, we've messed up Joseph's life, and God's purposes are being done as well. I'm accomplishing good in Joseph's life. So there are times where when we look at our circumstances and we go, I don't like this. This is really hard. I want out. And you may not always be able to see the good that God's bringing, but God has promised that he's bringing good into your life. These phrases at the beginning of verse 20 or all throughout verse 20, these are phrases that are heaping up for us what God has done. God has brought us peace. God has brought Christ from the dead. God has given us a great shepherd. God has has entered into an eternal covenant with us by the blood of his son. All of these descriptions should have an effect on us. They They should wash over us in a way that gives us peace and confidence, stability, joy. These descriptions have us involved in them. Right? So God is a God of peace, but that's not subjective. You were an enemy and he made peace with you. God is a God who establishes Christ as the great shepherd, and that's awesome because you're his sheep. See, see we're involved in these things that God has done. God promises to keep his side of the covenant and ours. Verse 20, what God has done, he's redeemed us. Verse 21, what God is doing in Christ. What God is doing in Christ now. And I would summarize that by saying he's equipping us. First, he redeemed us. Verse 20, what God has done in Christ. He's redeemed us. Verse 21, what God is doing in Christ. He is equipping us. And there's so much to that word equipping. God is doing this in you as individuals and in us as a church. God is active. He's working in us. He's equipping us to do good, verse uh, 21. Uh, May the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He's equipping us to do good. The the word equip has the idea of of completing, restoring, mending, putting all things right. We we know what it is to be equipped, right? If if you're going to play football, you put on your football equipment, your pads, right? Your helmet and your shoulder pads, and you put, you put your pads on and your cleats, and you have equipment so that you can go and play football. If you're a hunter, you have an enormous amount of equipment, right? I mean, I have, you know, ask my wife. There's just hunting stuff kind of all through the house, and, and um, I've never met a hunter who has enough equipment yet, unless he owns a Cabela's, okay? But we, we think, okay, I'm going to go into the woods, so I've got to bring more things with me than I would usually have in life, into the wilderness with me, I've, but I've got to be equipped. I've got to have everything that I need to do what I need to do. And God has promised to give you, to, to equip you with everything that you need to do good. Everything that you need to do good, God has promised, I'll give it to you. So again, illustrations are ridiculous. They break down so easily. But um, if I'm going to go hunting and Mr. Cabela calls me and says, hey, just go through the store, whatever you need, um, you know, is you just take with you. Like, I'm going to think, ah, oh, it's good to go. I'm going to be well equipped for this venture into the wilderness. God 
is saying, I'm going to give you, I promise to give you the equipment that you need, the equipping that you need to do good. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this. Paul says to the Philippian church, I am sure, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's, God's working in you and equipping you. He's doing what he has intended to do. Titus 2.14 describes us as a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have the equipment that God wants us to have to do good works. We're equipped by God so that we can do his will. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. What is his will? Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's will for you is that you grow step by step more and more into the image of his Son, Christ. God wants you to become more and more like the King like King Jesus, and he's actually promised to equip you with what you need spiritually to grow in that way. And we could, we could walk through the Bible and talk about how that the way God equips us is through the, through the word, through prayer, through the church, through friendships. There are channels that the equipping comes through, right? You're not just going to sit in your bedroom, you know, alone and think, all right, God, let her rip. Equip me. Give me the equipment that I need. This equipment comes to us through the means of grace and through specific channels that God brings into our lives. He's the one who equips us so that we may do his will, so that we would be like his son, Jesus. So he's the one equipping so that we're the ones who are doing. But then the next phrase, again, just kind of throws my brain into a cramp. At, in verse 21, Follow with me. Equip you with everything good that you may do. Okay, that word do. Just hold your finger on that for a second. His will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The word do and the word working, they're the same Greek word. So God's going to equip you so that you can do the work that pleases him. And he's the one working in you to do the work that pleases him. God's going to equip you to do the things that please him. And when you do the things that please him, he's the one doing the things that please him through you. Remember, God keeps both sides of the covenant. God's the one who's actually working in you to work to please him. Working in us to please him, working, yeah, these two words, do and work, are the, working are the same Greek word. Philippians 2.13 says this, for it is God who, you know this, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's the one who works in you both on the level of your desires and the level of your actually doing. He's the one who gives you the heart to do it, and he's the one who does it through you. When I do righteousness, God is the one at work through me. See, because at the end of the day, who gets the glory and who gets the praise? Do I, at the end of the day, say, God, thanks, I nailed it today. I really did well. Or do I say, thank you, God. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken earthen vessel. And if you used me today, God, it's for your glory. And the reality is, I know you're the one who did it anyway. 
It is God who works in you. So, verse 21, he is equipping you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And I love the end of that phrase, uh, which is pleasing in his sight. Right? So, so there are things that my son or my children, that they do that are pleasing to me. They're not particularly impressive things, but they please me, right? So Abraham smiles, and I'm pleased. He's starting to crawl, and I'm pleased. Christiana draws pictures and paintings and gives them to me, and they're rough, they're rudimentary, but I'm pleased, right? Jay shoots a rabbit, and I'm pleased. Let me just, I mean, and I really am pleased. I'm, that's a train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. There are important things you should instruct your children in. Hunting is number one. Number two, number two. Hunting is number two. Um, my, my children don't do things that are impressive to me, but they do things that please me. And, and it does my heart good. And, and brothers and sisters, I, we're not going to end this message this morning with a list of things for you to go and do. The purpose that this prayer was prayed and the reason I'm preaching it this morning is because I want you to be blessed and encouraged. I want you to know some things and believe some things. And because of what you know and what you believe, I want you to feel some things this morning. So, so God's working in us in such a way that we actually bring pleasure to him. One pastor says, even Jesus' own examples, perfect and powerful as they are, cannot in themselves enable us to follow in his footsteps. We need more than example. The writer calls on God to make possible the outworking of this truth in the lives of his people. And his working in us to make us work is pleasing to him. It's through Christ, verse 21, working what is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. Both verses um, name Jesus Christ specifically. Jesus Christ is the hero of this passage, of this book from Hebrews 1.1 all the way through. Jesus Christ is the one who's being lifted up high and being magnified. And the glory goes to him. So he's, he's doing this work through Jesus Christ. Remember, the gospel is the work that Christ has done for you. 2 Corinthians 3 describes it this way, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We have this confidence through Christ. And verse 21 ends this way, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you go into the original language and you try to figure out who the to whom be glory forever and ever is, you can make an argument either way. You can say the to whom be glory is referring back to God, who started off the beginning of verse 20, or it could be referring to Jesus Christ right there at the end of verse 21. And, you know, you read through the commentaries, you look at the language, and it's, it's just impossible to tell exactly which one it is. And I think even that's on purpose. Jesus is God. I don't know that we're supposed to make a distinction here between who gets the glory. Our lives are to be lived in such a way that glory is given to God, right? So if you go and ask little Evangeline, my youngest daughter, what's man's primary purpose? Actually, do this and see if she, if she gets it. What's man's primary purpose? And she'll say, man's primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, she doesn't have a clue what that means, but she knows that's the right answer. Do you know that that's the right answer? Don't let that scare you. Oh, no, my life is to be lived in such a way that I'm supposed to glorify God. 
God's already said, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to work in you in such a way that you're going to live in a way that glorifies me. I'm at work in you. Remember, I've promised to do nothing but good to you. I've promised to put in your heart the impossibility of turning away from me. I'm going to do good through you, and it's going to bring me glory. It's going to bring me glory forever and ever. This is not a short-lived glory. Ephesians talks about the glory that Christ gets through the church for all ages, forever and ever. God will get glory through your life. Brothers and sisters, God has been at work in your life by redeeming you. God is at work in your life by equipping you. And it's all for his glory. He gets glory. This you know, is the last sermon uh, you know, that I'll probably preach here, at least as a pastor um, uh, at Grace Church. Uh, the the thing I love about this is this passage, it's, it's not about me, it's not about Scott, it, it's about God and what he's doing through Christ in us. And he's going to keep doing this in me in Texas, and I'm going to, by God's grace, take a message like this and seek to inculcate these truths into a, a body of believers there in Texas so that they'll be living this way as well. This is, this is the work that God's doing in his church universal, in his church local, his local expressions of the church, and in the individuals who make up the church. God's doing this in us by the work of Christ for his own glory forever and ever.